The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. in uh, Paul's, uh, what we call the prison epistles. He's writing from house arrest in Rome. We're covering his life over a long study of everything he's done, everything he's written. And uh, right before Christmas, we did the little tiny book of Philemon. We're going to do Ephesians over the next two, maybe three weeks. Then we're going to cover uh, Colossians, uh, and then we'll get back to his life, and I'll teach you a bunch of stuff that's not necessarily in, uh, or it's not definitely in the book of Acts to chronologically describe what happens after his uh, house arrest before he's re-imprisoned in the maritime prison, and we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. But this week we're in the book of Ephesians, and I've got to go a little slower here because Ephesians is one of the most profound books written. If you had to make a list of the New Testament books, or really any of the books of the Bible, that are incredibly profound. Everyone would put Romans at the top of the list, and we spent weeks and weeks on Romans, so we wouldn't go too fast. With Ephesians, we've got another deep dive, and the first three chapters is deeply theological. We're going to cover that all this week. Practical stuff comes in chapters 4, 5, and 6. I'm probably going to break that up a little bit because there's too much stuff in there on good living. So Paul is in house arrest. He's in a real nice house in Rome. Uh, He's got people that can come visit him. He's got people that can write uh, as he dictates under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's chained with an eight-foot chain to a Roman guard that's learning a whole bunch of theology. Uh, And as we read from the book of Acts, uh, there was a a spiritual transformation of the Praetorian Guard. And uh, Paul says that virtually the entire Praetorian Guard, uh, whose job was to guard Caesar and political prisoners, uh, became Christians. So that's what's happening under house arrest. This book is titled Ephesians because your Bible in the first couple of verses uh, talks about to the faithful saints in Jesus Christ at Ephesus. The earliest translations we have do not have that little clause. If you go back and you look at the the second and the third century uh, manuscripts we have of Ephesians, it's missing that phrase to the saints at Ephesus. What is believed by theologians is that Paul wrote this and sent it to the church at Ephesus. So they had the original letter from Paul. It then got circulated to all of the churches that Paul founded. Everything we've discussed, every place we've discussed in the last 18 months, this letter went to. So it's thought of as what's called an encyclical, a letter that would go to multiple different people, kind of a broadcast for all of the church. But because it was sent to Ephesus, as scribes wrote in over time, a little note here, a little change there in Ephesus got added in. So we've always called it Ephesians. It's appropriate to call it Ephesians. It got sent to the people at Ephesians, uh, at Ephesus. But the reason why uh, it is so profound is Paul wrote it and the Holy Spirit wrote it purposely for everybody. The way you view this book is Paul wrote this not for a guy like Philemon where it's purposeful for one guy to learn one thing and we can all benefit from that. The purpose of this was to write it for all of us so everybody knows that this is final exam material. Paul and God through the Holy Spirit want everybody to know this because it's such a big deal. And as you dive into the theology this week, you'll see why that's true. 
in Ephesus. We covered this uh, when Paul went there on his missionary journey. We covered this uh, during the second, third missionary journey where he spent three years there. He spent more time at that church than any place he ever went after he left Antioch after his conversion. And uh, it's one of the neat places because if you go there today uh, on any tour of Turkey, this is either the first or last stop based on where your tour guide starts from. Uh, but it's amazing. In this picture, it shows the port all the way up to the city. Today, it's multiple miles from the Mediterranean because silt is all filled it in. Uh, but at the time Paul was there, it was an amazing uh, uh place right on the seashore of the Mediterranean. Uh, this is the remaining facade of the library. You remember when I, if you were here a year or so ago, when I taught Paul in Ephesus, we talked about how he had a little place over to the side where he did Bible study every day when the people that were doing the Bible, that, that were doing regular school took their siesta and they went away for the afternoon nap. He said, I can do Bible study there. And he brought his guys in. Uh, so Paul would have been in that uh, courtyard on those steps. His school would have been off to the right. And this famous uh, amphitheater still exists there today, the largest remaining Roman amphitheater. If I've got a bucket list items, one of my goals is to uh, do Bible studies someday in that uh, stadium. Uh, uh, maybe you can come along. We'll see what happens. It may be just a Bible study with me and Natalie. You never know. Uh, but uh, it's cool to me because Paul, in three years there, would have sat in those seats. Paul would have seen that view. He would have seen what it was like to have a theatrical performance in that particular place. Uh, so it's neat to me that it's still there, and you can still go there and have... Uh, things, you can reserve it for actual uh, events, speaking events or concerts, uh, and they still have people that go there today uh, by the thousands to hear musical concerts or to hear somebody speak. It's also neat to walk through because the streets still exist. You can still uh, figure out where the main street is, where the side street is, where the houses were, where the churches are. Uh, so it's really, really neat uh, that uh, you can go to Ephesus today and see that. And Paul was writing to them not as the destination for this letter, but as the first place that letter went. So as we dive a little bit deeper into our letter, I described on your outline his themes in this letter. I put some key words that appear in this book, and just by counting up the words, you can figure out what Paul's talking about the most. He's talking about Christ 15 different times. So multiple times per chapter, he's coming back to Christ. This book is all about Christ in our lives. The second most frequently used word is grace, and it's a misunderstood point that we're going to apply next week. So I'm not going to give you a deep academic dive on it this week. We're going to apply it next week and what it means to have Christ's grace in us and how we exercise grace to other people. He talks about riches 11 times, and 11 times referencing riches is a reference to what we have that we don't appreciate that we have. So he's not describing it as our destination. He's not describing it as what we have after we die. He's describing it as a wealth that if you don't appreciate, you are foolish. And he's describing it in terms of what we have to grasp to live the life God wanted us to live. And then he uses the word fullness or filled or full or some other permutation of this grace and riches in our lives that when it fills us, we can do things with it. And he references that 10 different times. He does that to describe two things. He's describing what I put on your outline as the mystery of the church. We take church for granted. We've gone to church most of our adult lives. Even if you didn't go to church, you knew what church was. To us, church is old hat. 
to Paul and the people he's writing to, church was a new thing. They had synagogue, they had gatherings, they didn't have church. And so Paul's describing this idea of where does church come from? Because church is not synagogue. Church is not what they did in a synagogue setting. So he describes this, this thing called a mystery, and I'll explain in a few minutes why he uses that word in describing what it means to do church. And then he uses that idea of the church using the metaphor of Christ's body. Because everybody wanted Christ to return. Everybody wanted Christ there with them. And he said the church is a metaphor for Christ's body. What he would see if he was here, the church is supposed to see. What he would touch if he was here is what the church is supposed to touch. Where he would walk and go do is what the church is supposed to do. So he uses the metaphor of Christ's body in a picture of what the church is, which is an application of this idea of the mystery of the church. But he starts with this idea that I put on your outline and I titled the lesson, Our Position in Christ. And the reason he's doing this as a foundational way to describe the way you live the Christian life, which is the end of this book, is he realizes that understanding our identity translates into what we do. If you think about it for a minute, your identity as a member of your family dictates what you did for the holidays. Your identity as a Texan impacts how you view other people, particularly the Yankees from the North that we don't like as much. Uh, it impacts, as an American, what you do and how you feel if you go to a foreign country. You could spend the rest of your life in a foreign country, you're still an American. Your identity stays the same. So the privileges that you have, the rights that you have, the things that you can do or not do, all of that's defined by your identity. So Paul starts with identity and says we've all got to understand who we are. Because you can't live the Christian life if you don't understand who you are. So I put on your outline our first point is chapter 1, understanding what Christ has done for us. And this is where normally I would dive into our text on the screen. It's microscopic, so I had to move it off to the side so I can figure it out. Forgive me while I just read to you. If you've got a Bible, we're going to start in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. I'll read a little bit slower than I normally do so you can follow even if you don't have a Bible. But on your outline, we're in the point where it talks about what Christ has done for us. And the first thing he describes as we are chosen. And I think you'll like this point. Let me also say before I start reading that Paul writes in a really, I'll call it mature, some people might call it complex, some people might call it confusing manner. Okay? The reason he does that is he's got so many ideas he packs into a single sentence that when you read it, if you're an English teacher, have an English teacher background, it makes you want to have a seizure, right? There's no short sentences with Paul by and large. There's no short little ideas. He'll have one sentence with 10 different ideas in one sentence. And it's really tough because Greek didn't have commas and they didn't have parentheses. And so I can write a really complex sentence, but using common parentheses, I can break it out. With Paul, you're hearing stuff or reading stuff and it just kind of goes different directions and it makes your brain shake. So I'm going to take it a little bit slow. So if you're reading it, it kind of sounds like, what? What's he doing? I'll explain it. That's the purpose of Bible study. So he starts on chosen, and this is a long verse for chosen, but I think you'll like it once I explain it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. 
for he chose us in him. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. Now, he's clearly talking here about this idea of election or predestination. And this idea freaks people out, but let me hold that for just one minute and tackle what I think is the more amazing issue, which is this issue of when this happened. Because it talks about choosing us before the foundation of the world. If I decided we're going to stop here and have group discussion, and I want everyone to stand up and tell me what they think that means, I'm probably going to get three incorrect answers. Because most Christians, when it says, what does it mean that God predestined you from before the foundations of the world? People give me three wrong answers. The first wrong answer is God created all of us, created our souls, before the creation of the world. And we all lived with him and we lived in heaven and we were fully functional and we interacted with him. And we were just living in heaven. And then when it was time for us to be born on earth, we lost all of those memories and our soul had no memory of that. And we just came to live on earth. Nice fiction, but there's no biblical support for that. Second thought is that God, incorrect answer as well, looked down through time, saw when we would be born, saw who we would be, and with his omniscient power looked all the way through heaven and chose us at this future point in time before we ever existed. Third point, also wrong, that I hear frequently on this, is that this is not talking about us individually. This is talking about all believers. God looked through time and he said, here's when Christ is going to come and all the Christians are going to be saved uh, and I'll call people to me. And that's generally what this is talking about. I think that's wrong as well. This is one to me of the most powerful, insightful, life-changing verses in scripture. And I've got to be a little bit careful here and understand I'm not being dogmatic. I'm just giving you my opinion theologically and biblically after studying scripture from a whole adult life of what I think this means. The problem with every explanation I just gave you of what this might mean is it assumes that God operates in the space-time continuum. In other words, that God's on a calendar just like we are. And God's up there going, well, it's January of 2020. I wonder what we're going to be tackling this month, right? <laughs> It's clear from Genesis all the way through Scripture, God exists outside of time. You cannot think of God as existing in the space-time continuum. He works here. He knows us yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's in the middle of our midst. He deals with our time, but it's his creation, and he exists outside of it. Heaven exists outside of it. What I think this verse is saying is that every single person here, Every single person who has ever lived was created at the exact same point in time, if you want to put a time reference on God. At the exact same moment, God breathed life into everybody. That's Genesis chapter 1. God then put us where God wanted us in time. He put my birth in December of 1965 to Dwight and Vena Mart because that's where he chose my soul would go. 
My parents created my body. God created my soul, Scripture says in Genesis and, and Psalms confirms. But the idea of God creating us at a point before time existed and then instantaneously putting our soul in the point in time where it goes makes sense metaphysically if you consider God outside of time. If you consider God stuck in time, that doesn't work. That doesn't make any sense. But if you think of God outside of time, this is profound because this means that when Adam and Moses and David and the prophets and the disciples and Paul and everybody else that we all got created at the exact same time and then God puts us into the timeline of human history. It means this verse makes sense because before the foundations of the world, God knew me, he knew he created me, he knew what I was going to be, and he said by his divine wisdom, you're going to be born in the latter part of the 20th century and I got a plan for you. I don't know about you guys, but that makes me feel awesome. It doesn't make me feel like a mistake that God looked at through the midst of time and said, eh, I think I can use that guy from Texas, right? If you look at it a certain way with God subject to time, I'm kind of a cosmic mistake and the subject of God's just divine choice. If I look at it as a matter of God creating me and you at the exact same point for the same purpose to do something that he has uniquely intended us to do, it becomes really, really powerful. The reason why is it says he chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself. So this is powerful because it describes choosing us, knowing we're going to be born into a sinful world, to be blameless and holy in his sight. How does that happen? That's because the next verse. Because, because of his love for us as individuals, as his individual creation, he predestined, he chose before time existed to be adopted through Jesus Christ as his own saying he's going to put us into a sinful world, he's going to bring us to a, a world where we live as sinners, and then he's going to adopt us as his own. And so he created us, but then it says he adopts us so that we spend the rest of our lives and the rest of eternity with him. It's an incredibly powerful idea of choice that is intended to start our identity to say your identity is not somebody that God just grabbed. Your identity is God's son and daughter. You're a member of the family. He wants you to be a member of the family. He wants you at the holiday events. He wants you living a life that's relational with him, that uh, you know fellowships with him and sorrows with him and does all the different things. It's just like the family experience most of us had the privilege of experiencing over Christmas, which most of us love because we love our families. It's the same way with God. If we see ourselves with him, it transforms the way we see ourselves. Because when it comes time to volunteer for something or to do something for him, we all do the same thing. We say, I'm not qualified enough. I got this thing in my life I'm embarrassed about. I never went to seminary. I got so much other stuff I'm doing. If that's the excuse someone gives before they come and have a Christmas Day celebration or meal with you, you look at them like they're socially backwards. You're like, wait a minute, you remember the family, you got to do these things. And that's the reaction of God when we give him those excuses of why we can't do the things he wants us to do to use our spiritual gifts. Second point on your outline, redeemed verses 6 through 10. I'm starting to read it verse 7. 
Verse 7 is where I got this word from, and it says, We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. There's a lot in that verse because it says we have redemption in him. My Greek word for redemption is pardon. There's seven different words that Paul uses to describe what happens when we get saved. This word means pardoned, and it's a great word because we can all wrap our heads around the idea of the governor or the president or the judge pardoning someone criminally. The president of the United States under the Constitution can look at any United States citizen that's ever been convicted of a crime, past or present, and say, by the power given to me by the United States Constitution, you are pardoned. There is no check. There is no court. There's no validation. It's the edict of the sovereign that says no matter what you've done, there's no longer a penalty for your crime. That's what God does. It says by the edict of the sovereign, no matter what you've done, past, present, and future, you are pardoned. Now, if the president pardons someone that's convicted, let's just say hypothetically, of bank robbery, and for who knows whatever reason the president pardons them, and they live the rest of their life as a model citizen, you think, yeah, that was a pretty good pardon. As, as soon as they get out of prison, they start robbing banks again? What do you think about that pardon? It's an indictment on the sovereign that pardoned them. Now, it's not the fault of the sovereign that pardoned them. You don't blame the president if they're still, you know, robbing banks, but it's an indictment on the sovereign for doing that. And so it's a great little picture here about the challenge that we have as still living in a sinful world and sinful bodies to live a different life is that we've been pardoned for our sins, past, present, future. If I'm still going to live a sinful life, what kind of, what does that say about the sovereign that pardoned me? It gives the conclusion, I don't think very much of that sovereign. I'm going to go back to doing whatever I want to selfishly do. But he says here that he gives us that pardon according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. I got to confess, growing up at the Christian church, I've looked at some Christians over time and I've wondered why God saved them, <laughs> right? Just the way they are, you wonder, God, what are you doing with their lives? Because I don't understand it. And that's between them and God. I'm not being judgmental. It's just a head scratcher for me. But this tells me I can't dwell on it too much for them or me because God's choice of us before time existed was done with all wisdom and all understanding. That means to the person that has done fill in the blank that you think is bad or culture thinks is bad, God says, yep, I know it, and I still love them. <laughs> yes, I know it, and I still want them. Yes, I know it, and I'm still going to do amazing things with them and blow your mind. <laughs> if you look at the biographies of all the saints of Scripture, yep. Moses, disaster. <laughs> David, biggest disaster in all of Scripture. Solomon gave his dad a run for his money in a life of disaster. The patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the, the, the men in the Old Testament, Paul, all the different guys we look at. 
men and women and scripture are screw-ups. They make bad moral decisions. They make bad parenting decisions. They make bad social decisions. And they're in scripture to say, see, that's what I mean. I can take that person that's worse than you because they're a murderer. They're an adulterer. They had children that killed each other. They hate each other so bad because you were such a terrible parent generations of grandchildren and great-grandchildren that didn't know God. And God still says, I chose that person as an example to you when you get depressed about screwing up to say, I chose you because of that. Because now you can relate to somebody that screwed up just like you. Now you've got a testimony that's more than God saved me out of my, you know, wonderful little perfect background. It's a background that people can relate to, not a background that people can't relate to. So it gives us this idea of redemption in God's wisdom and God's understanding that we're not supposed to be able to shake our hand, head at and say, no, I, I really don't understand how he could pick me or how he could pick them. Our next little point here jumps down to verse 11 that talks about we obtained an inheritance. It says in verse 11, we also received an inheritance in him. Here's that word again. Predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. So that we who already put our hope in the Messiah might be praised to his glory. That's a great little verse that says we've got an inheritance. And the inheritance, you notice, is not future tense. If you're following along with me, if I had this up on the screen, I would show you this is written in what in Greek is called the aorist tense. We would describe it as past tense, meaning it's already happened. It's true today. It was true yesterday. It's true tomorrow. It says we have also received an inheritance. Now, when we think about inheritance, you think about something in the future that's going to happen when some distant relative dies and makes you rich, right? It's something way off in the future. But what it's saying here is that we've already got our inheritance. Now, you look around and you go, wait a minute. I'm still broke. I still hate my job. I'm still struggling with these relationships that are really, really tense in my life. How is that my heavenly inheritance? What it's describing here is that our place in heaven is as secured as if we are already there. It describes in the past tense what we have yet to fully experience because his promise is so strong, so true, so unchanging that we've always got a seat at his table. It's the same way that if you've got a Christmas event and you're struggling with your schedule and you're not sure you're going to be there, you know your place at the family Christmas table is always going to be there because it's your family, whether you're there or not. It's the same way here. You've got a place at that table, past, present, future, because you're in the family. Same thing with heaven, and it's describing it because he predestined according to the purpose of the one who works at everything in agreement with the decision of his will. It's a bookend on the prior point that he did not make a mistake in calling you or anyone else who's a Christian. That means you can't look down your nose at somebody else who's a Christian because you don't like the way they worship because they don't use instruments or they do a liturgy and you don't understand the liturgy 
or they do it on a certain day of the week that we don't do it on. If they're a believer in Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, it says God chose them and wants them just like he wants you. We're all in the same family, so stop looking down your nose at each other. And his point here is that if you look at yourself and think, oh, there's some kind of mistake, he just called me to live with him in heaven, but here I'm just going to kind of go through my life. It's no. He says he called us because he's got a purpose for his agreement and decision of his will regarding what's going to happen for his ultimate glory. Meaning he's got a plan for us. You're here not to just be mother, father, worker, uh, sibling, parent, grandparent, grandfather, whatever your status in life is. It says there's a purpose of his will that deals with his spiritual gifts in our lives, not the places in life we find ourselves. He then wraps up and he says, not only are we redeemed, not only are we chosen, not only do we have an inheritance, we got power and resources that will blow your mind. <laughs> cool little passage that he ends on. Uh, on your outline, I described as verses 15 through 23. I'm just going to start reading at 18. And this is a prayer in Ephesians 1.18. He says, I pray that the perception of your mind may be enlightened. So he's saying, I'm praying that you can see reality so that you know what is, in, what is the hope of his calling, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his vast strength. So Paul's prayer to the people reading this letter and to us is, I pray that your small brains can have a slight sliver of understanding of the hope of his calling. That means his calling of us and the hope that he has that we're going to live up to our potential that he's called us to knowing why he called us among his glorious riches of his inheritance. In other words, the fact we've already been adopted, we've already got a seat in the presence of God. And it says the immeasurable greatness of his power, okay, the power of creation, power of resurrection, power of healing, power of peace, to all of us who believe according to the workings of his vast strength. So Paul is saying here, you guys are tapped into a power source that is the power source for the entire universe, and you're worried about paying a bill? You're worried about somebody that you're having relational conflict with? You're worried about your job next month? Paul's saying, wake up. I wish your brain could realize you are an adopted son of the greatest power source in the history of the known world. Paul's saying, wake up, guys. Your identity is not just a child. It's a child that has access to all the power of the universe. Now, does that mean God's going to wake up and make you omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful? Heck no. He knows what we do with that to screw it up. <laughs> but it says with a sliver of his omniscience, a sliver of his omnipotence, a sliver of all of his omni-attributes, we've got the ability to get through anything. It's intended to give us an identity to say, okay, I'm now ready to live the life you want me to live, but it starts with identity. 
Now, I'll go through chapter two and three a little bit quicker because chapter two and three is just kind of a buildup, but I described on your outline is our next little point of chapter two is what Christ has done in us. And most of these you'll look at and you'll go, eh, that's pretty elementary. Teach me something I don't know, Chris. Paul's got to make sure everybody's on the same page. So he starts with, we're saved from sin. That's chapter two, verse one. You were dead in your trespass and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. I love that verse because it starts by making sure we all understand who we were before we were Christians. We may think we were educated. We may think we came from really good families. We may think we came from really good stock that, you know, put us in the right place in life and gave us all the right opportunities. You may think you made some good decisions in life prior to the time you became a Christian. Paul says, eh, as far as God concerned, you were dead. You were different from him. You were separate from him. You were his creation, but you were under the control, he says, of the one uh, the ruler who exercised authority under, over the lower heavens. In other words, Satan in his dominion. And out of that death, then we now have the spirit in us, and so we're now walking in what he calls in different books the newness of life, but he starts out with us being dead. Then he describes the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens. We're going to come back in a different uh, time in our study and look a little bit more at Satan and the demons and how all the demons work in the world. But he's saying here is, is a picture of us coming out of sin. Satan has got control of the world. And you may look at it and say, well, I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on in the world. Why this bad thing? Why this hunger? Why this premature death? I really don't understand it. And you're basically saying, I'm not God, and I don't understand what God's doing. Accept that as a reality. We're not God, and we don't understand what he's doing. But out of that dominion where people have the freedom of choice to ruin their lives, God's working in an amazing way, and he's saying, don't get too hung up on those who are not believers, because it describes them as a spirit now working in the disobedient, a spirit of the demonic that makes them reject all those things of God. It's a reminder that while we're saved from sin, as soon as that happens, you're living in spiritual warfare. You're living in a war zone that you can't survive anymore without the help of the sovereign as you could being in a war zone right now in 2020 without the help of the U.S. military, right? None of us would walk into a war zone with a picnic basket and our cell phone saying, let's go see what kind of fun we can have today, right? What happens? You get a bullet, you get a mortar, you get a cannon, and all of a sudden you're not living anymore. It's the same way with spiritual warfare. So he starts by saying you were born out of and born into a time of spiritual warfare. And the reason you were done this, he echoes again, is because of love. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespass. It means he didn't make you as a science experiment. He didn't make you as a theological experiment. He made you because he loved you. He cared about you as a person. So the person that says, well, I don't like my height. 
I don't like my baldness. I don't like my gray hair. I don't like my skin color. I don't like my gender. Whatever it is that you don't like, this is a picture of saying because of his love for us, he made you the way he made you to do what he uniquely wants you to do. So it's a great little reminder that we're not here as a mistake, that he didn't just make us with a billion other people. He made us by love for our salvation. And he did it for a purpose. Verses 5, if you're following along with me, tells us you are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up Notice the past tense, raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through the kindness to us in Jesus Christ. That means even though we're still down here, he has already raised us up into heavens so the angels look at us not as somebody struggling through life, but somebody who might as well already be seated in heaven. And what this is saying is, despite your failures, despite your shortcomings, despite what you think you lack, this says you've been lifted up, you, to display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us. That means when I'm sitting and the angels look at me as if I'm in heaven, the angels say, can you believe that scoundrel Chris Martin? <laughs> Can you believe that guy taught Bible study? Of all the people, God chose that loser? Are you kidding me? And he does that for all of us. And the angels go, can you believe with that background what God did? Can you believe with that shortcoming what God did with her and with him? It says everything you're ashamed about is the whole reason that God elevates you up into heaven and says the angels ought to rejoice around you because what you're ashamed about, when the angels see and say, yep, I see all of that shortcomings, to God be the glory. Amen. And that's why God does Amen. it because he takes us in our fallen sins despite our sin, despite everything we're embarrassed about, despite everything we wished we had done differently in life or some attribute that we wished we had. And it says, take and rejoice in it. Don't be depressed in it because that's what God wants the angels to rejoice over. He saves us through faith. We could do a whole lesson on this. Because this takes away the last little argument that someone would say, thank goodness I chose to believe. I'm glad I made the choice which team I'm going to play on. God says, you don't even have that in your favor. You didn't even get to choose which team you play on. He chose you, verses 8 and 9. For you, he's saying, individually are saved by grace. We'll talk about that next week through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's a gift from God. So the person who says, I chose the team to be on, God says that little modicum of faith in your heart and that measure of grace that you experienced that put those two together, that wasn't you, that was God. You say, well, wait, how does that work? I thought I had free choice. I thought I had the ability to choose which team I was going to play on. And it's saying that when he chose us before the creation of the world, while we do have free choice, he chose you and he put that desire in your heart, that faith in your heart to say, even though I don't understand, I'm going to believe in Jesus Christ, even though a bunch of other people won't. 
And he's saying that little bit that made you step forward and cross that line, step out of that pew, uh, ask that person to talk to you about God, make that phone call, whatever it was for any of you guys in your own testimony. It's saying that little modicum was not you stepping out and deciding which team you're going to play in. So don't be arrogant about that. That was God choosing you before the creation of the world. So at this point, people's brains are normally blown and they're like, wait a minute, I am still struggling with how I can have free will and make all the choices I want to make, yet God's sovereign and he's choosing me from the beginning of the world. People have not been able to explain it since Moses started trying to figure this out. I can't explain it to you either, and the reason why is our brains cannot wrap our minds around the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, Scripture says, is so far beyond our understanding, all we can do is worship it. So rather than trying to figure out how to reconcile free choice in God choosing me before the foundations of the world, Scripture says just worship Him because it's awesome. He took away your ability to gripe about Him calling you, and at the same time, it took away your ability to gripe about anything He gave you with. So it's a powerful, powerful position. But then he wraps up, and I think the most important part of chapter 2 is verse 10, where it says why He did all this for us. Because at this point, the really depressing point looks at this and says, wait a minute, God, I think you may have made a mistake with me. I'm not the person you think I am. And then you start trying to tell God something that you think you know about yourself that somehow you think the creator of the universe might have missed. God says, "Uh uh-uh, verse 10, for we collectively, individually are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. That means as a Christian, with the spiritual gifts he's given you, the circumstance that you're about to walk in in life, he created those circumstances for you. When it says good works, it is not describing doing things that are jumping through hoops. It's not tithing. It's not going to church. It's not reading your Bible. Those are good things. When it describes here in context, the Greek words it's using are that track what I put on your outline. It's doing something good for someone else. Sometimes believers, usually non-believers. And this is the transition point into the rest of this book because when you do something for somebody else, sometimes believers, usually for somebody else, you are becoming the body of Christ. You're becoming his eyes that see injustice or see a need or see harm and you want to go in and be Jesus and give some peace or give some calm or provide some resources to deal with whatever that problem is. So it says we're creating Christ Jesus to do good things for other people, which God planned ahead of time. So that mission trip, that need in the neighborhood, that need in the community, that whatever it may be that God's calling you to do for somebody else in your family, in your community, somewhere in the world, it said God planned that ahead of time for you. So how do we figure that out? Different lesson for a different day to go into a deep dive here, but the short lesson is that's why when you're in prayer, you're in the Word, your heart's in tune with the Holy Spirit, You're asking him to guide your lamp to the very next step. The lamp that guides our feet, as the psalmists say, is not the train light shooting miles down the track. 
It's the lamp showing the next step in front of me. So my prayer every day is not what's way down the road ahead. It's God, what's in my step for today? I'm taking a step to work. I'm taking a step socially. I'm taking a step relationally. What's the next step? So if I want to know what are the good works prepared ahead of time so that I should walk in them, I got to get up every day and say, God, the good works that you want me to do for somebody else, show me the next step today to get there. That means God doesn't show you months and years down the road what those good works are. It shows you for Sunday what Sunday step is, and on Monday what Monday step is, and on Tuesday what Tuesday step is. So guess what? After a couple of hundred or thousand steps, when you take them one day at a time and you look behind them, you say, wow, God, I cannot believe where we have come. If you look ahead and you say where it's going, what do we start doing? We start planning. Oh, yeah, that's where we're going. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to volunteer for this, and I'm going to take this. And God's like, no, 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 no. I got a different plan. Your focus is one step at a time, one day at a time. That's why I'm not telling you what's coming months and years in the future. We then transition to the very last part of our lesson, the little, last little bit of time we got, last 10 minutes we got. It's what Christ has done between us. It's the end of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. And here it starts with being unified in Christ. I gave you a long passage on your outline of 11 through 22. I just want to read you a couple of verses starting with 14. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. I jump down to verse 19. So then you, believers in Christ, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saint, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building being put together by him grows into a holy sanctuary for the Lord. You, individually, are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. This basically says we're not just Baptists. The biggest, I think, heartache to the Holy Spirit is the diversity within Christendom. The diversity in denominations, the diversity between Catholics and Protestants, the diversity that you could think of between East and West, Asian and Western, how you'd think about uh, even in America, Northern and Southern, or Eastern and Western, all the different diversities has got to be a heartache for the Spirit because we're intended to be one. Now, it does not say you compromise on biblical truth. It doesn't say you worship and join theologically with someone that's abandoned the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. It says God intended all of us to be one and together, so stop fighting with other Christians. Stop looking down on other Christians. It means we can minister with other faiths. It means if we're doing something... For the body of Christ, we need to be welcoming for those who recognize Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let him worry about some doctrinal difference. Let him worry about some worship difference. It means we've got to work together and not just have a holy huddle within our denomination saying this is who we are and this is what we're going to do. It says we're unified in Christ. Act that way. And if you say, well, I don't understand how any of that's going to work because people aren't going to agree and there are cultural differences and there are uh, all kinds of different differences, so it's okay to have all these differences in Christianity. That's why he calls it a mystery. On your outline, I put the mystery revealed and I described verses 1 uh, through 13 of chapter 3. 
Let me just read you a little bit of the first part of chapter 3, starting at verse 4. He says, by reading this, intended to be the letter he's writing, you are able to understand my insight about the mystery of the Messiah. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. The mystery to them was how Jews and Gentiles can go to church together. The mystery for us may be how Baptists and Catholics can go minister together. The ministry, mystery to us may be how Baptists and Methodists can go do something together. There's all kinds of mysteries of I don't understand how somebody different than I am and I can do something together for Christ. Paul says this is a mystery that God has explained to him and our message is just simply to go step out in faith. Don't draw lines of separation because somebody else is a different denomination if they worship Jesus Christ and somebody else is from a different part of the world. It's saying it is a mystery that has been revealed to us. Now we just have to go figure it out. And he says the reason we do this is the fullness of God. On your outline I put verses 14 through 21. I'm going to tie it down in just one verse, which is the middle of verses 17, 18, and 19. It's Paul's final kind of theological prayer. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's a bunch there. Let me, digress. Let me dig it out in the next five minutes we got. It says, I'm praying that you can comprehend what has been established in love. Okay, so it's God's love for us, his choice of us, that we can comprehend the length of God's love. What does that mean? The length of God's love means where he's willing to go when you and I and other people in the world don't deserve it. That means the person that's hurt you earlier in life still deserves your love. The person that did wrong to you earlier in life, this says there's still a length of God's love that he's willing to go for them. Next little phrase, the width of God's love. What's the width of God's love describing? That's the breadth that you look at and say, why in the world would God love that person? If I was God, I would not love that person. This says God cast with a net far wider than you can ever comprehend. So it's going to lengths that we can't comprehend. It's width that we can't comprehend. The height of God's love. Contemplate that for just a second. The height of God's love is a level of love that you think when your heart is just bursting with love, God is still even greater than that. Think about the moment in life where you may have a moment that you just thought the height of my love has never been higher. For some of you, that was an engagement. For some of you, that was a wedding day. For some of you, that was the birth of a child. For some of you, that was the birth of a grandchild. For some of you, it was an event in life where something happened that was just transformative. And you think my heart was full of love then that says, eh, God's still higher. His, his capacity for love is higher. His expression of love is higher. Whatever is the greatest, highest love you've ever experienced, 
God's relationship with you is even greater than that. It's even higher than that. But the most powerful one is the last one, the depths of God's love. Because the depths of God's love we can't comprehend. We can't comprehend it in our own sinful lives. We really, really, really don't want to comprehend it in the lives of other people. Because we see people in life that we just categorically reject. We reject them based on choices they've made in life. We reject them based on stations of life. We reject them sometimes on different socioeconomic factors. And this says the depths of God's love transcends all that. The translation application point here is if you want the fullness of God, you do not put limits on the length, width, height, or depths of God's love. When you say, I have condemned this person because they hurt me. I've condemned this person because the choices they've made in life, if that's what they want to do, they're just going to have to live with knowledge of God knowing they're going to hell. Whatever you may want to rationalize. If you want to know the fullness of God, stop putting limits on the length, width, height, and depth of God's love. That means no matter how bad they were to you, God may have a plan for them. No matter what choices they've made in life, God may have a plan for them. No matter where they are in life station that you find deplorable, God may have a plan for them. The application's real simple. The application beyond this is because of who we are, let God be God. Because I am his chosen son and daughter, decided chosen since he made my soul before he made any aspect of this world around us. Because I'm his adopted son and daughter through Jesus Christ, let God be God. If we do that, the good things he wants us to do to believers and non-believers just got the doors kicked off of it. Our ministry just got kicked open to your entire job place, your entire community, all of Houston, all of Texas, all the world. Because if I put any other limitation on it, I'm limiting the length, the width, the height, and depths of God's love. Because this is saying God's got love for other people. He's got something he wants them to do, and the reason we're all still here so we can do that for him as his body, his eyes, his ears, his feet, his hands, because that's why we're here. If you want to know how to live this as a parent, as a spouse, as a grandparent, as a coworker, that's Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. We tackle that next week. So be with <laughs> us next week, and we're going to tackle all the good stuff that follows in Ephesians. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this knowledge this morning of who we are. And while it blows our minds to comprehend our free will and your sovereign choice of us, we worship you and praise you this morning because of your love for us that we don't deserve, we don't measure up to, we have failed you repeatedly. And we just say thank you and we love you and we commit in 2020 to be the son and daughter that you have chosen us to be. And we ask, Father, as we go forward this week, one step in front of us, that with our identity in you, we have the peace of letting you be God. That we stop trying to hold the reins, we stop trying to control where we're going, we stop trying to decide what path we're going to be on, and we just simply say, God, be God in my life, in my family, in my work, and in my community. And then all of those results, we just give you praise for because they're not because of our will, our mind, our strength. They're because of your power and glory. 
And we just pray this week that we can tap into it. We ask these things through Jesus' holy and precious name through which we pray. Amen. See you guys next week. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved. Thank you.